We invite you to take your Bibles as you remain standing and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. We have uh, come to the end of a little section that relates to Elijah's call and then his, uh, his uh, refreshing call and then also Elisha's call. And we want to look at that text found in 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 19 through 21. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. <clears throat> he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he rose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of the word. Thank you for its certainty in uncertain times. Thank you for the fact that believers throughout these centuries and ages have turned to it and found great comfort and consolation. Do that for us today, I pray. Give us wisdom to, to be able to discern what your spirit would have us learn. Teach us, I pray, at the feet of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> We've been looking at this, uh, the recounting of what's been taking place in Elijah's life. And of course, Elijah went and beyond, sat beneath the juniper tree. And you'll know that in the process of time, God strengthened him, brought him to, to uh, Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he was waiting upon God to do great and mighty things and show how powerful he was so that he would show how God was going to bring repentance to the land of Israel, the northern ten tribes that had split off from the southern two as Israel had fractured in that nation. And so he was waiting upon God to show that God was going to bring that revival because that's what he fully had expected. So God meets him in his grace, meets him at Mount Sinai, and he brings before him these great illustrations of the power of God and the majesty of God, exactly as we would expect God to do. God does control the wind. God does control the earthquake. God does control the fire. All of those cataclysms that can happen, God controls them. <clears throat> they are not outside of his control. And yet God was not in any one of those things. God instead demonstrates his presence, so to speak, in the small, still voice, the quietness. And so God says to Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing here? Why have you come here? And Elijah explains to God why he came there. Well, because the God's People, these Israelites, had turned from God. They'd turned to idolatry, and they have been trying to stamp out the prophets of God. They want to take my life. They have not repented. I'm here. And it would seem to say that Elijah was expecting God. He had gone to the same place where God had met with Moses. He's expecting God to do something similar. An exodus, something that would have been a powerful demonstration of God's control. And yet God says it's not the time. Understand then in the still small voice, God often works, more often than in the big things. And that for every believer we know. You turn to the Word of God and you look there in your daily devotions and you find something there that transforms your life. Something so small and so simple is an aha moment and your eyes open up and the Lord teaches you something. And that is a still small voice work of God. The conviction of heart. When someone speaks truth to your soul and the Holy Spirit allows you to recognize truth, your heart turns about and says, I need this. 
and you drink it in because you love it. God has given you a new nature, as we have found in the scriptures. So God goes on to explain in his grace to Elijah what his intent is to do. And as we turn to this text, we'll be seeing as we look at verses 15 down to verse 18, this renewed commission, just a little bit more detail we want to give you than we were able to give you last week. And then verses 19 through 21, a prophet to train. God gives him this renewed commission. Here's your purpose. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. God says, go back where you came from. Go back through, follow your way back on up to the wilderness of Damascus. I have a plan for you. You're going to walk from here. And you're going to get back up there. And 160 miles away is where he's going to meet Elisha. So he had a long walk as he will go to Abel Mehalah, that area where Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is plowing with his oxen. But before he gets there, there's a little bit more of a commission. Go return on your way to wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. This was not a nice guy. This was a bad guy. This is a king that uh, was going to become a scourge to northern Israel. This is not something that was going to be pleasant. But it was going to be part of God's process of humbling and crushing the rebellion against him by using this ungodly king. God does use ungodly kings. He's always done that. God knows what he's doing when he allows uh, these kings to act out in their badness. And of course, that is something that has been fraught and built into the history of mankind. You say, why would God allow this? Well, God has a purpose. He doesn't explain the purpose. Doesn't tell Elijah why he was to anoint this king. This other king, uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, verse 16, also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Another guy who wasn't righteous. He didn't turn back to God, but God was going to use these two individuals in their leadership and in the things that they brought against Israel to be um, scourges to them. And God often must do that. The humbling of the soul is a hard, harsh process. If you have, remember back to when you were born again, if you lived any period of time without Christ into your adulthood, you know that God has to take you through some hard, harsh processes in order to bring you to a point where you're ready to listen. It's the work of God. And sometimes believers, we have to recognize God's doing certain things that he will do because they are right, though we might not understand them. And that's a hard lesson. It's always a hard lesson. It's one that, young people, you have to understand, too, when your parents do something that you won't understand and you think it's unjust. But from their perspective, they do it because there is a right purpose. Now, later on, you might understand it as you get a little bit older, but be patient. And I believe it's the same thing with us as adults. We, we go through the life, life and say, why would God allow this? And as a Christian, I'm sure unsaved people speak to you that way. Why would God allow these terrible things to come? Well, are we listening to God? If we're not listening to God, how else is he going to get our, our attention? But most mankind, most of mankind would just like to let things be the way they are. Let us continue on with what we have and let us be able to produce and provide and be happy. And that's what we all want. But that's because the heart hasn't been opened up to the things of God. Where's the repentance? That glorifies God. Where's the understanding and appreciation of his grace? That glorifies God. Where is the yielding to our allegiance to the, the might and the sovereignty of God? That glorifies Him. That's His purpose in all of creation.
that's your purpose and mine. And the reason why we were created was to bring glory to God. It's a hard lesson to learn, especially in a world that doesn't understand God's majesty. And so obviously, Elijah's given a very difficult call. He will anoint two people, two kings, that will be pointed out and given the right to rule, and they are going to be bad rulers, or at least bring judgment on God's people. That's because the still small voice is the way God's going to get a hold of the hearts, not the earthquake, the fire, the wind. Then he's also given this other challenge. He says, and go and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Elisha, in his name, reflects upon God being the God of salvation. God is the one who saves. He is the one who is the solution, the, the saving one, the one who brings about um, redemption. Shaphat means to judge, which is an interesting thing, isn't it? There is a, a, a judgment that God brings with his prophets. And so here is the one that Elijah is sent to find from Abel Mehalah, which is a, a valley close to the Jordan and in the Jordan Valley. And he says, uh, you will go there, you will anoint the, him as a prophet in your place. Because it wasn't going to be Elijah that saw the great revival. Uh, for you and I who are getting older, we recognize there's going to be a lot of life that comes after us. For grandparents, you may be recognizing there's a lot of life that comes after you if God tarries. But know this, your prayers have an impact upon those days when God takes you home. God gives you a reason to pray for your grandkids, for your great-grandkids, for the people who succeed you. Understand that you have a purpose and a plan, and Elijah's being given a task, and that task is you're to train a prophet, you're to raise up this prophet who's going to finish the job that you begin. And so you're going to go find this individual, you're going to anoint him as a prophet in your stead. And then one more thing God gives. He says, here's the explanation, verse 17. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. And yet know something, Elijah. Yet have I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is a fascinating passage. Because Elijah's been saying, where is everybody? I'm the only one. Now he's run into Obadiah. Obadiah has 150 prophets uh, in, in caves, and there he has been taking care of them. He's been feeding them. But 7,000? Where did that num number come from? How come Elijah doesn't know them? I mean, you and I know who are Christians at work, right? You know who you bump into who really know the Lord. As you talk to them, you can hear the fruit of truth coming from their lips, and it reflects an allegiance to God. And so your heart just kind of sings in, in, uh, in, in communion with them. You know they're believers. They may not all dot all the I's and cross all the T's the way we do, but you know they're God's people. How come Elijah didn't know about these 7,000? I think there's a clue in the book of Romans chapter 11. So if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 11 points out this sovereign nature of God's control and what he intends and does and is doing even among us. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknow. And then he will quote the passage we are seeing in 1 Kings 19. It will shed light on what I think we're understanding with what God's saying to Elijah. 
He says, God will not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Remember what foreknowledge is. In the Bible, there's a verse in the book of Acts that speaks about God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. That's in, I believe, Acts 2. And Peter is explaining to the people God's plan. And he gives us an, an explanation in the Greek language of what foreknowledge is. The word and in the Greek language, when it has a two words side by side on either side of it as parentheses, if the first word has the article, the, and the second one does not, then the Greek rule is that the word and can be translated even instead of and. So and even uh, is the way that chi word works. Meaning, in that passage, Peter says, God, according to the determinant counsel of his will, even foreknowledge. So he's explaining what the word means. It's not the way we have foreknowledge. Moms, you know, you're watching your little toddler run across the floor. Their feet start going faster and faster, and their center of gravity starts leaning ahead. What do you know in your foreknowledge is going to happen? Down they're going to go. Now, maybe they'll survive that fall or maybe not fall at all, but that's our kind of foreknowledge. We have a foreboding, I guess is the way we can put it. God doesn't forebode anything. What God does in the Greek is an active verb. He knows something actively, which means that it's not occurring to him. And it's not something he's passively allowing to come at him. It's actually a choice. It's a decision-making thing. And so Peter uses the term that we find here, foreknowledge, which is the same as determinate counsel. That means, then we go back to 1 Kings 19, that God's foreknowledge of his people is that there are 7,000. Whether today know God or not, he knows who they will be. He knows what he's going to do. There's that great sense of comfort that God's in control, and we're not just waiting for man to respond. And so this is the way Paul explains it here in our passage. He says, His people whom he foreknow, or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response, that word in the Greek can be translated oracle at the same time. It's maybe on one hand a response, but it's also a, a statement, a command, a, a defining statement of God, not necessarily as an answer, but it's God's statement. What does God's statement say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. By grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. It's interesting that Paul would pick up this 1 Kings 19 passage and then shed light upon what we're reading in 1 Kings 19. Why did Elijah not run into them? Why hadn't he not, had he not seen them? Well, because they were either very silent about it or they were yet to be God's people who had been brought to repentance. God had that remnant. Believers, I think it's important for us to understand that no matter what God is doing in our midst, God knows what he's going to bring about. He knows those who are his. And so one of the reasons why you evangelize is not because you have results and success. It's because you know they're a fish in the sea. 
There are people that God has, is at work in their lives, and your job is to get the gospel into their hands so that God's work can be accomplished of grace. It is all of grace. That's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. It's because God was at that work knowing who he was at work in their lives and brought it about by his orchestration. So maybe you don't know 7,000 people at work, but I wonder which ones God's already working with. Maybe you don't know of great revivals happening across our land, but be praying that there will be, because I know God's going to work. He'll work in lives around you somewhere, somehow. God is that kind of a God, and that's what I believe God is saying to Elijah, what comfort there is in knowing that God is in control. I want to take you in the next few moments that we have remaining into this uh, part of a prophet to train that we read in, chapter, in verses 19 through 21. So he departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. 160 miles, found Elisha. What is this story telling us? And I remember reading through this and never quite getting the picture of what happens. So listen closely to the words as I read them to you again, and then I'll try to illustrate how it worked. He says, he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was the 12th. And then Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle on him. And Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah. You know, it's interesting to see what's going on because it's a little different than the way I assumed. I never quite assumed it was like, uh, you know, a carriage with a set of sets of horses in front, you know, where they're just all pulling the one plow. Although I kind of had a concept that that's what I thought it was. You don't do that with oxen. They're a yoke of oxen. They're paired. And so you have six or 12 yokes of oxen. They're plowing as they go through the field. They're working along. And so you get the picture of Elijah walking down past the field. And as he walks past these men who are individually plowing along with their yoke of oxen, and Elisha is the last, then you find Elijah taking his mantle off and tossing it on the back of Elisha. That was a symbol of the fact that God was choosing him above all the rest of the team leaders. Elisha apparently was the team team leader. And you find him out there receiving this cloak, which was a statement of saying, you're anointed. You are going to take my place. You have now been given that authority to become a prophet. And and you've gotten a call from God. And that's really what we're reading here is God's call for Elisha. Call of God seems rather mystical, I think, in our day. You know, we kind of get the idea that, you know, pastors have some kind of special something that, you know, just like a light that dawns on them or who knows what. And we kind of think of it as mystical if we're not in the, in the clergy, so to speak. And yet that's not how God presents call. Now, for some individuals like Elisha, it's unique. Here comes Elijah, this prophet. He throws his cloak on top of him and he says, follow God. You're, you're basically the a prophet after me. And he really doesn't have to say anything to him. He just throws the mantle on him and Elisha knows the significance of it. So verse 20, he left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. It's a natural, good, normal request. And it's an okay thing. What's interesting is Elijah has a response. Elijah's response is, you know, I'm not the one doing the calling. God's doing it. And that's the beauty, the first lesson about the call of God in our lives. It's a work of God. Though God will use other people around us, it's a work of God in our lives to, to, to place that call upon us. And so his response is, go back again for what have I done to you? I've not done this. 
God has done this. And if God's leading you to go back first and say goodbye, fine. It's between you and God. And there is a beauty to that and also to you and I in understanding that as we give the gospel, we're not the ones that can force a result. It's of God to give the gospel. It's of God to plant inside the life that incorruptible seed of the word of God. It's of God to plant life in them. I can't make that happen. You can't make that happen. As you try to lead your children into a saving knowledge of Christ, you cannot force that. It's a work of God, but you must be faithful. And Elijah was faithful doing that. Elisha then took up that call, that mantle, and so then knew exactly what it was about. Let me first go kiss my father and my mother. He said, go back. Verse 21, so Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his minister his servant. That was how the relationship was established. Sometimes God might not give you the fruit that you thought you were going to get for your sacrifice for Christ or service for him, but there will always be something that God gives you, joy and service. He may give you someone you can disciple. He may give you someone who can come alongside and be encouragement to you. God will always do something. So the still small voice that Elijah got was the young man who had to be trained, train him to be an apostle, or a, a prophet. I want to take just a, the last few minutes, take you into the New Testament, because, you know, we could turn as we think about the call of God to all kinds of places. We can go back and look at Abraham's call. Get you out of the land of your forefathers. Go to a place that I will show you. Uh, just Joshua, uh, Moses pulled him aside, and he became Joshua, Moses' right-hand man. Gideon. You know, in this, in this, your strength, go. You know, you've got these names of people called Paul, even, in his call. God stopped him on the road to Damascus, put him upon his knees, and saved that man because he called him Lord when he realized who it was that was who had crushed him. And then God stopped him and said, I've got people for you to stand in front of. I've got the Gentiles. I'm calling you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You will go and you will testify of me in king's palaces. There are times when God does that kind of a call, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah. I've chosen you in the womb. But you know, for most people, the call of God, especially to ministry or the mission field, is a little bit different than that. Because God doesn't always do the spectacular. He does the still small voice thing. So young people especially, I want to challenge you with just a couple of passages of Scripture to understand what may be part of God's call in your life to the mission field or to the ministry or to some other form of service. How does God do it in these days? What is He doing? And God can do it too with somebody turning to a second career. God can do it to, to all sorts of people in a special sense of a call that we would think of calling. Let me take you first to uh, the passage found in first, Second King Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul tell, uses these terms to describe um, the preparation for a call and what God intends in giving a call. Let me make sure I'm in the right passage here. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. I was thinking that as I said it. I should have uh, listened to my still small voice. 1, Kings, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, 
it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. I believe that where call begins is in a life of faithfulness for anybody called to anything. When God calls you to reach out to your, to your neighbor in Christ, are you being faithful? When God calls you to lead or encourage or strengthen someone else, are you being faithful in the small things that God calls you to be? And this says it's required in stewards. This is a requirement. This is the thing that is established as a, a classical character trait. Be faithful. Be found faithful is what Elisha was doing. Elisha was being faithful. He's dispensing the job he was called to do. He was leading other people. And God allowed Elijah to find him there. Faithfulness is the first step in, in uh, what God would have us know. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then into chapter 2 further explains this. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 11, <clears throat> Paul puts it this way, and he, after going through a litany of, of evil that's around in the world and evil behaviors, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. There will always be in God's call, are you faithful? And then secondarily, a commitment into your hands. A commitment, which comes from other people, or it comes from people who are led by God in faithfulness. Ephesians chapter 4 describes in a church the, the missionaries and the pastors, and that the fact that they aren't the gifted ones, it's the office that is a gift, not to them, but to the church, when you look very carefully at that. That indicates that a commitment comes from others into your hands. That's why we talk about a call of God to ministry in the individual's life, but he's really not a pastor until a church extends a call. In other words, the office is the gifts, is the church's gift, and they have the privilege of committing into the hands. So when a missions trip comes up or something that is an opportunity of serving the Lord, God may be working in your heart and say, I'd like to think that's, that would be fun to do, but then go get advice from others. Ask them what they think. Do they see in you a faithfulness that allows uh, that kind of commitment into your hands for uh, the mission's work that you might be considering or considering God laying upon your heart. So committed to my trust. You see, first it's faithfulness. Can you be trusted? And then as you are being trusted and trustworthy, then things are committed into your hands. So where does call begin? Calls begins first, do you know Christ? It moves into are you being obedient to Christ? And will somebody be able to entrust into your hands that call? God entrusts in the hands of Christians the, the gospel testimony of Christ. Are you being faithful in sharing the gospel testimony? Let me take you also to chapter 2 and show you something that's very interesting. We go through chapter 2, which is an incredible... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is this incredible statement with regard to faithfulness and committing things to faithful men. We tend to think that this describes how to become faithful in this section as you go through all the different individuals that are listed in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. You find um, the farmer, you find the soldier, you, you find uh, people who are, are known for their faithfulness. These are all lifestyles or those things that we know are characteristic of faithful people. 
And so as you observe people around you already being faithful, then verse 1 and 2, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you want to call of God to ministry, then you have to work at a good, faith, good work ethic. You have to work at being a faithful servant like a, like a farmer, like a soldier would be. Know what it is to endure hardness as a good soldier. And you go down through this list of student is listed in here as well. Knowing how to rightly divide the word of truth. These are characteristics that we need to develop so that the call of God can be evident in our life. So if you're saying, well, I don't know if God's calling me in the mission field. First question, do you know Christ? Second, are you being faithful? It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And that faithfulness is described in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Are you willing to endure hardness as a good soldier and not be entangled with the affairs of this life? Are you willing to study? Are you willing to be? Uh, all of those things found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to take you to one more passage, which is in uh, 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 1.12. We looked at verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now look what Paul says. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Those three steps are really important. The call of God will be to believers who, are, who know faithfulness and are being faithful and have that commitment into their trust. How does that happen? God does an enabling in their life. He counts them faithful. It's his choice as to who's faithful, his discernment. And then he says, because he's put me into ministry. There's that driving force. So for everybody who's called to the mission field or called to the pastorate, like Elisha called to be a prophet, there will be this heart that God puts in them. It begins there. Do you know Christ, first of all? Are you a faithful kind of a person? Are you being faithful in God's things? And God builds into that heart, counting you faithful, and he thrusts you into the ministry. There's that, there's that work that doesn't just come from you. It's got to come from God's people. They open that door to ministry. They say, I think I observe in your life something that God is doing in you, and he is, he is impressing me that you have those qualities, those characteristics that's, that speak of being someone who's a man of God. Have you ever considered, has God ever spoken to your heart in the Word about being a pastor, about being a missionary, about serving in some special way? That's what a call is today. Now, there may be a few who have something miraculous that makes them stand out, that like, uh, something very special like Abraham or like Isaac or Jacob. But believers, most of us are just listening for that still small voice, which is also the way God works in most ways. So what is God challenging you with? Do you think God's ever prompted you to consider the mission field or the pastorate or something along those lines? Or maybe you're saying, I'm just too young to know. I don't know. Well, God will make it plain. But what you must be is be faithful. That's what we're all called to do, all called to be ministers of the gospel. And God will encourage, and he'll open up those doors, and, and, and church family members understand this. We do a great disservice if we're not looking out among ourselves for God's work in the life of some young person, for mission work, for being a pastor, for service for Christ. 
We need to encourage it and fan the flames of it and encourage God's work so that God can do what verse 12 says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. I hope that that gives you a little bit of an insight of some of the great lessons that we find back here in the book of 1 Kings 19. Uh, just as we close our service together, I want to give you some things to worship your Lord about. First of all, God knows those who are His, and He will not let them go. We need to pray that way, don't we? Pray for unsaved loved ones. Lord, break their resolve against you and crush it, because we know God does that. Continue to pray and pour out your heart and ask God to transform lives around you. God knows those who are His, and He will not let them go. He will never fail. What an encouragement to pray. And second of all, do not ever allow any earthly affection to keep you from obeying God's call, whatever the call may be. Don't allow any earthly affection to keep you from obeying God's call. Earthly affections always vie for your godly affection. Don't allow any earthly affection to keep you from God's call. I want to give you a few moments to speak with the Lord and, and um, confess or to thank and to rejoice and worship Him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, I thank you for the tremendous blessing of the Word of God. How sad it is that so many in this world look at it from maybe once or twice in their life and they turn away and say, it has nothing to do with my life today. Oh Lord, how wrong that is. How timeless is your holy word. How practical, how it applies and, and informs our lives. I pray that you will allow us to take some of the things we've learned today and not just make it an academic exercise, but may we thank you for the work and may we see how you work in the lives of others and in, in our own life. Father, may we find courage and encouragement. May we find challenge and conviction. May we find blessing and purpose as we've looked to the Word of God today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.